0: Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, The prophet said, "...He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." I want to talk about grief this morning. don't consider myself to be an authority on the subject, but I wanted to start here in Isaiah 53 because it... Expresses the idea that Jesus is an authority on the subject. And so, what I want to do today is look at what Scripture has to say about the subject in, in hopes of helping us all. You know, grief and considering grief and sorrow is not the happiest topic I've ever studied. But I think it probably has as broad an application as anything that we can talk about, because the truth and the reality is every one of us most likely are at some stage of grief in our life at any given point in time. And I think it's important that we talk about these things and that we think about these things other than at funerals. because. If we can prepare for the difficulties that will come in life, I believe it will help us when they do come. First thing I want to remember is where grief came from. And who's to blame for grief? We're familiar with these verses in Genesis chapter 3 as God read the sentence to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And he said unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days. Of thy life. And so this is the beginning of grief. This is the beginning of sorrow. Prior to sin, there was no sorrow, there was no grieving. But now we're all subject to it because of sin. And ultimately, I want us to remember that it's the devil who's at fault, and he's the one we're at battle with. I want to spend the next part of our study thinking and talking about some different things that, that cause grief in our life. I didn't know what order to go with on these. So I just kind of went through Scripture and went with the order I found these things. The first one I want to talk about is a foolish child and how that causes a parent grief. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 21, the Bible says, He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Children are a great blessing to us. But when they hurt and when they suffer, we suffer and we hurt and we're grieved. And it doesn't matter, folks, if their suffering is physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. It grieves us. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, the wise man says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I hope we remember that this is a general truth, because if we don't remember that fact, we become very arrogant in our parenting. And what I mean by that is if we decide, based on what Solomon says here, that if we will parent correctly, then we will insulate our children from ever having a problem in their life. And that's not the way it works, is it? We need to do the best that we can do in raising our children. But guess what? We're flawed. I'm flawed in every way there is, and I'm flawed as a parent. And I thank God when my children make good choices, but I grieve when they don't. You know, we need to set a good example to our children, we need to teach our children to love the truth. We need to teach our children when they make a mistake that they own that mistake and they confess that sin. And if we don't do those, folks, we cannot expect our children to do those things. A foolish child will grieve us. And it should. They should. In Matthew 19 in verse 22, in the exchange with what we refer to as the rich young ruler, Jesus says here in verse 22, or the Bible says, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now there's a contrast here that's stunning to me. The very thing that we imagine can bring us happiness and security in our life brings grief. And that's what our possessions do to us. You know, somebody has said, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, that, you know, we grieve because we love we didn't love anything or anybody, we wouldn't have any grief. But folks, we shouldn't be loving our stuff. And I get it. You know, sometimes our grief is just because of change. You know, we lose a job, and that grieves us. Because it's a change that we don't like. But if our grief is about stuff, our affection is in the wrong place. And that's the point of this story about the rich young ruler. He did so many things right, but he had one flaw, didn't he? And what did his flaw do to him? He went away. He went away sorrowful. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, the apostle says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after it, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And we see it time and time again, don't we? It shouldn't be this way. You know, I've been thinking a lot about persecution recently because our Indian brothers were in the country and they talked a lot about their changing situation and the fact that it seems in that country that the persecution is ratcheting upward. And it's something that I think we dread, but I think we see it coming in this country. But you know, the Bible is real clear about persecution. The Bible says we're blessed when we suffer for our righteousness. It's a blessing to us. Well, it's hard to feel that blessing. But what I want to talk about in the context of grief is that God knows This is difficult for us. And that's pointed out here in Exodus 3 and verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So when we suffer for our righteousness' sake, when we suffer for the Lord... God knows our sorrow. He knows that that's not what we desire, that's not what we want. But even in that circumstance, it is well with our soul. That's what man can't touch. But it grieves us it grieves us to consider being persecuted. In Isaiah chapter 17 and verse 10, the Bible says, "...because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips, In the day shalt thou make thy plants grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Now what he's talking about here is the principle that we find in Scripture that we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow, and that grieves us. (laughs) Sometimes the harvest is bitter. And that grieves us. But it's just a reality of our existence. And the beautiful thing about the concept is that we can stop sowing the thing that's bringing sorrow in our life. You know, in the illustration here that Isaiah uses, this person does everything right except one thing. In the growing of his plants, he does everything right except one thing. He forgot God. He forgot God. And so his harvest was bitter. Don't forget God. And don't forget, in a spiritual sense, that we reap what we sow. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And I just want to tell you folks, my lust grieves me. It grieves me. At this point in my life, I imagine that I ought to be at a place where the devil couldn't find anything to tempt me with, but guess what? It's still there. You know what grieves me even more? I give in to the temptation. It becomes sin. You know what grieves me even more? My children fight the same temptations, some of them. Psalms chapter 31. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress, my eyes wasted from grief, and my soul and my body also. He's talking about what his sin did to him, and the way that it affected him. And folks, if your sin doesn't grieve you, you are in a bad, bad place, because it should. And the, the beautiful thing about David, he was very self-aware. And He shared that with you and I. And He talked to us about what sin did to Him. And He explains to us how destructive sin is. And He explains to us why it grieved Him and why it should grieve us. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And folks, that's what sin does to us. And that's why it should grieve us. And when other people struggle with sin, it should grieve us. But it should also remind us what's been done for us. As a remedy for that sin. That grieves me too. He went to the cross because of me. But remember what godly sorrow does? Produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. Our sorrow is a wonderful thing if we use it to motivate us to go to a better place. And that's what it should do. But notice the sorrow of the world produces death. He goes on to say there in verse 11, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And there were the results. It produced diligence, clearing, indignation, fear, desire, zeal, and vindication. That's what their sorrow did when it was godly sorrow. And that's the way we should respond to our sin. And that's the way we have to teach our children and other people to respond to their sin. Be sorry for it, but don't hang your head and say, well, I'm just a worthless whatever he died for you. You have forgiveness available to you. That's godly sorrow. And it produces these positive things in your life. If we let it, if we let it. Separation. I suppose when we think about grief, the first thing that comes to our mind is, is the grief of death. And that separation that death brings. And it's profound. It's a profound grief because death seems like such a permanent thing. And it is from a fleshly perspective. It is. Acts 20 and verse 38, as Paul was leaving these folks, he tells them, he says, I'm not going to see you anymore. And he knew what he was talking about. And they knew he knew what he was talking about. And it made them sad. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more. And they accompany him unto the ship. Goodbye, from a fleshly perspective, is hard. That's why the apostle says in Hebrews, in First Corinthians 15, that death is our enemy. You know, when we talk about death, and we talk about the death of a Christian, and we talk about God's perspective on the death of a Christian, and we even talk about the perspective of the dead Christian, it's not bad. What's bad is that those that are left are grieved. That's why death is our enemy. It grieves us. It's a separation. Luke chapter 7, we have this story. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Pretty tough deal, wasn't it? She had one child. And now that child's dead. And we say all the time most difficult things we can imagine is having to bury a child. That's where she's at. And she don't even have the support of a husband. It's a separation. It grieves us. It grieved those people. Because much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. We know the Lord has a different perspective on death, didn't He? And yet, he had compassion on her. But he came and touched the beard, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. We like that, don't we? That is the power that Jesus has over death. Death is the, our enemy. It's the enemy of the living. But Jesus has power over that. Praise God. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 But we do not want you to be uninformed. Brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We have hope, folks. And this separation that seems so permanent is not. Because Jesus has power over death. Now we have this idea expressed in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Solomon says, And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. I read that and I struck, what in the world is he talking about there? Y'all know what he's talking about? He's talking about his desire to understand things. He wanted to understand. Why did things have to be the way that things are? Why do I have to be grieved? And folks, the answer is... We can't explain everything. We can't. We want things to make sense. And when good people die, and when good people suffer because good people died, we want that to make sense. And it can't. It can't. Not from an earthly perspective. And the more we hunt, the more sorrow we're going to find. That's what Solomon is trying to teach us. Because he asks this question, or makes this statement. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He was at the top of the heap. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. He wanted to know. He wanted to understand. He's going to figure this deal out. And God had promised him wisdom. And so he's going to use that and he's going to explain everything, right? I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sword or veil hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. We can't answer everything. And there's things about grief that we'll never be able to explain. I found this from a commentary. Sorrow grows out of getting more knowledge, for knowledge brings with it a realization that many things in the world are hopelessly bent out of shape. We live in a broken world. And Solomon couldn't fix that broken world, he couldn't understand the broken world. And, folks, we're in the same place. We can't explain everything, and we certainly can't fix everything. The wise man becomes ever more conscious of the scope of his ignorance and impotence, of the uncontrollable power of nature of great evils which he is powerless to remedy. And that's what we want to do if we're not careful. I struggled with whether or not to go through this. I, what I wanted to do is, I, what I wanted to do was put scripture with every one of these, and I believe they're based on scriptural principles. But I wanted to talk about some other things, so I didn't get all of that done. But as we examine ourselves and we think about our grief, it's a process. And I want to look at some of these. You know, you can find different versions of this. I went with the seven-step version because it had a little more detail in it. But when things happen, this is the process that our emotions take us through. And it's not a bad thing. There's not one step in this process that's a bad thing and it's not a linear thing where we start here and we get here and we're done it's one step forward and two steps back sometimes it don't make sense necessarily but the first thing that happens to us is we enter into this shock we're surprised we're shocked that this has happened And then shortly after that, we do everything we can to deny it. And we have folks that have suffered different things in different ways. And you've done this recently. And I hope this is not too soon to talk about these things, because my goal is to be helpful. But when someone dies suddenly, that's the way I want to go, right? But that's very difficult on those of us that are left. And so this shock and denial thing is a little different in that circumstance than it is for somebody and some family whose loved one has gradually died. But you know what, folks? Even when you go through that slow, difficult process of your loved one dying, you're still not ready when they die. You can say, well, I should have been ready. Well, maybe so, but it's just hard to get ready. So that's the first step in the grieving process. The second step is described as pain and guilt. And the guilt is particularly bothersome because what that means is that you start examining things that you could, should, might have done differently to help somebody. But that's a necessary step. And it's painful. Painful. Then you get mad. And that's why I started off where I did in Genesis. Because when we get mad, we need to be mad. at. We need to lay the blame where it's supposed to be. And the bargaining part of that, I guess it's kind of a personal deal, but some people say, well, you know, God, if, if You'll do this, then I'll do that. And it's kind of an irrational thing, but for some people, it's a necessary part of the grieving process. And then we come to depression, and that's when the reality of this is not going to change. It is what it is. We can't fix it. It's just depressing. And then things can begin to turn around. And again, like I said, it's not some wake up one morning, hallelujah, this thing's over. Deal. But over time, hope returns gradually. Your interest and your ability to do other things and think about other things gradually returns. And then at that point, you're able to start working through things. And ultimately, you get to a place of acceptance and hope. So those are seven steps. You know, you think, well, you can do that in a week. You give each one a day. can't even do it giving them in a month, and it may be a year or years. And the other thing I want to say about this last step, when you get to that stage, that doesn't mean that you stop missing what you lost. That means you've accepted it. And some people I fear, think, well, if I feel okay about it, then I'm betraying them. No. we, we never get over our losses in the sense of not thinking about it and wishing we had that back. Here's the danger and the reason I wanted to go through this. We get stuck. We can get stuck. And that's when our grief paralyzes us. And it'll destroy us, folks. It'll destroy us. It'll destroy our ability to have other relationships. We'll blame God. We'll be angry at God. It'll destroy our ability to be a good Christian. It'll destroy our ability to help anybody else. So that's why I wanted to talk about these things. And if you're stuck somewhere except there at the end, let's work on that. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 3, Solomon said, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. Again, this is one of those statements that's completely counterintuitive because we'd much prefer laughter over crying. But he says just the opposite. But you know what else he says? In Proverbs 15, A merry heart maketh a a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. And so you have these seemingly contradictory statements from the same writer. You know the difference is? In Proverbs 15, he's talking about being stuck in your grief. It'll break you. It will break you. Don't allow that to happen. And here's the antidote. Here's the things that we need to hear and the things that we need to think about to get us out of that place and get the process moving again. In Job 6... Job understood grief, folks. He lost everything kids, prosperity, wife abandoned him, evidently. He lost everything. Job gets it. But he didn't just go through that grieving process in a few days. But he says, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. You've got to hang on to the promises of God. That's what he was talking about. And when you get stuck in your grief, Psalms 32 Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. Now one of our challenges is when bad things that are bringing and grieving us terribly, and we see the wicked prospering and doing well, and they've got all their loved ones it can hurt. But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. There's a blessing in trusting God. In Esther chapter 9 and verse 22: As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned into them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. The very thing that they dreaded and expected to be terrible turned from sorrow to joy. And that's going to happen for us too, if we will hang on to the promises of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you in John 16 and 20 that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. See, there's that contrast I was talking about. And ye shall be sorrowful. But here's the difference. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. And finally, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what God does for us. And ultimately, He's going to remove all of our sorrow, and there will be no more tears. That's our study today. Thank you for your attention. We never want to close without offering the Lord's invitation to those that might have a spiritual need. We can help you in some way. Would you please come and sit on the front pew as we stand and sing?